Are we on? Oh, good. The little red light was not on, so okay. Thank you, John. Uh, I have to admit that I was a little concerned because John spent eight days driving across the country with me back from Alaska, and I thought, what is he going to say about me? (laughs) You see the good and the bad when you spend that much time together with somebody, so thank you for that. Let's get right into the word here. Uh, Psalm 96, if you would turn with me uh, to that passage. That's the theme of the conference this weekend, and we're going to take a look at this at this psalm today. Psalm 96, I'm going to read all the way down through verse, uh, through verse 6. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Before we dive into uh, the meaning of the text, I'd like to talk a little bit about the context of when this psalm was written, when and why. And I think that will help us understand a little bit about what God is intending to say to us in this psalm. So if you would turn with me, uh, real quick to First Chronicles, uh, back in the Old Testament, back a few a few books. Let me see if I can find one in the uh, your pew Bibles here, and I can find the page number for you. First Chronicles chapter sixteen, verses twenty three to twenty seven, and it is page two ninety seven of your your pew Bibles. <clears throat> First Chronicles 16, 23-27 Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Almost word for word, what we just read in Psalm 96. And so the Psalm 96 was taken uh, from this passage in Chronicles. This is a psalm written by David. Uh, the context of the event uh, when this was, was written, you can read about in, in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. You can also read about in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We won't go there, but if you'd like to check that out later. So what was happening here is... Uh, This context of the psalm has to do with uh, King David becoming king and the Ark of the Covenant. What was going on in Israel at the time was uh, they had been in a period of turning away from the Lord. Uh, This history really begins uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You read it through. Israel was in a time when they were not following the Lord. Uh, and 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 describes this time. It says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. They were not following God. They were not hearing from God. God was not communicating with them. And so they were kind of walking in their own direction. Because of this sin, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read the account of a battle with the Philistines that they ended up losing. 
And in that battle, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant was taken away from them. Now, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was the symbol, the representation of God's presence, God's strength, God's kingly rule over the nation of Israel here on earth. Psalm 132 verse 8 describes the Ark, says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the Ark of your might. So the Ark of the Covenant that had been constructed for the purpose of holding the tablets of stone that uh, Moses brought down uh, with the Ten Commandments on them, the Ark uh, was constructed to hold these tablets, among a few other things, and the nation of Israel was intended to bring the Ark with them as the symbol of God's presence, the symbol of their submission to God as their king. And so we come to 1 Samuel, and we, we read about... Uh, Horrible sin that's going on uh, within Israel. Uh, the priest Eli had two sons who were, who were not following the Lord. In fact, the, the text says that they did not know the Lord, and yet they were the chief priests. They were leading the people in worship at the tabernacle, working very close among the Ark of the Covenant, and they were stealing people's offerings that they were bringing. They were having affairs with women who were coming to offer their, their, bring their offering for sin. So these, were, these guys were in horrible sin, not following the Lord at all. And so it brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they lose the battle with the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant is taken away. Their enemy steals the Ark and removes it from them. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse, 20, or chapter 4, verse 22 describes that day says, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is a dark time for Israel. And uh, when they say that the glory has departed from them, that's serious. So now without the glory of God or his strength in their presence, without Israel following the Lord, they started looking around at the other nations around them. And this is when they demanded a king. Up until this time, uh, God had always purposed Israel to be led by God, God was their king. They followed him. They God spoke through the prophets, and the prophets spoke to the people. God was their ruler. But now, walking away from the Lord, looking at the other nations around them, they want to be like them. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20 describes their request for a king, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they no longer trusted in God. They no longer listened to God. They wanted to trust in a man. They wanted a king so they could be like everybody else around them. Fast forward 70 years. Now they've gone through this time, Samuel, Saul, and now David has become king. He has ascended to the throne. He begins to restore righteousness to, to, uh, to Israel. He, uh, the kingdom is united again under David. And we're, we're taking a real brief, quick tour through history here. But the kingdom is united again through David. He defeats the Philistines. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And he goes and gets the ark and brings it back. <clears throat> this was a huge moment in the history of Israel. After all that, those dark years, decades worth the ark had been taken by the Philistines. It was abandoned. It was left. It was in the wilderness. It was, uh, people forgot about it. 
probably overgrown with weeds and everything. This is intended to be God's presence here on earth, and yet it was abandoned. So David says, we cannot worship God in, in Jerusalem without the ark. So he goes and gets it, brings it back. This is a huge moment in Israel's history. He commissioned a huge ceremony with singers, with musicians. He gave gifts to all the people. This was a big moment for the nation of Israel. And it's in this context where we read Psalm 96. So now that we have the, the reason why this psalm was written, let's take a look at it. <coughs> me. I had a sore throat this week, naturally. And so if I sound a little bit like I'm going through voice changes, that's why, excuse me. <clears throat> so kind of summing up the historical context, Israel walking away from the, from the Lord, God's glory removed from Israel, David becomes king, he renews their trust in God, he says, we are going to follow the Lord, he restores righteousness, brings the ark back to Israel, here we are at Psalm 96. So let's look at the text. <clears throat> so now that God's presence has returned, they have two responses here in verses 1 through 4. The first response is praise. Verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name. So their first response is worship. We're going to worship God because God has returned to us. Their second response Verses 2 and 3, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Their second response, proclamation. Proclaim salvation to the world. So what does this mean for us? We're living in the New Testament era. Uh, we don't have the ark here. God has removed the, uh, the veil. God has removed the distance. We, don't know, we no longer need a prophet. We can communicate with God directly. We don't need God's presence through a physical item. The Lord, uh, God lives in us. We as New Testament believers, when we become Christians by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. So we no longer need to go to be in God's presence. Romans chapter 11 says we are grafted into the people of God. Israel was the Old Testament people of God. We are brought into that fellowship now through faith in Jesus Christ. God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit in the same manner that he dwelt with the nation of Israel through the Ark of the Covenant. So how does this apply to us? Just as Israel sang for the presence of God among them, our first response as believers is to give praise to God. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God in us. We can sing a new song, uh, very first verse, 90, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. We can sing a new song because we have new life. Thank you. <laughs> yes, amen to that. So our next response, as the nation of Israel did, and uh, kind of the focus of our conference this weekend, our next response is Proclamation. It has always been the intention for God's message of salvation to go to the world through his people. That's always been God's intention. In the Old Testament, he intended the nation of Israel to be that proclamation. He intended them to be the voice of salvation. And we see that right here in our text. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory 
among the nations. It's not an internal thing that just is for the nation of Israel. He always intended the message of salvation to go to the whole world through the nation of Israel. As New Testament believers, we have been brought into the, the nation of God's people. We have been brought into belief. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 says that we are now the house of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now that commission to declare his glory among the nations is passed on to us. We inherit salvation through faith in Christ. We inherit God's presence through the Holy Spirit. We inherit the commission to proclaim salvation to the nations. This is long before Matthew chapter 28. We talk about, you go to missions conferences, you always hear Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world, proclaim, preach the gospel to all the nations, make, make disciples, baptize in the name of the, Holy, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is long before that. This commission existed years and years, hundreds of years before Jesus said this to us in Matthew So Jesus' commission in Matthew to us as New Testament believers is not something new. This is rooted in the Old Testament commission to Israel. And again, we see that in Psalm 96. Now something I want to point out here. We can see God moving. I want to show you the connection from the Old Testament right through to the New Testament, right through into the the end of the age. Turn with me to Psalm 132, 132 verses 4 and 5, and I think we have that up on the screen there. This is also a psalm written by David at a time when when he was getting ready to go get the ark. He wrote this psalm and expresses his his, um, desire to go and find a dwelling place for the ark. So verse 4, 132, verse 4, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He's talking about the ark. So he's relating the ark to the mighty one of Jacob, to the Lord, and he's saying we need to find a dwelling place for God's presence. The ark is a symbol of God's presence among God's people. God wanted, David wanted to establish a dwelling place for it, a home. And so that he brings the ark into Jerusalem. God's people are gathering at Jerusalem because this is now the capital of the nation of Israel. And their response is proclamation. Proclamation of salvation to all the nations. Now turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. <coughs> The context of this passage is right after the birth of Christ. About 40 days after Jesus was born, uh, Mary and Joseph, as they were instructed by the law, uh, after the day of circumcision for Christ, 33 days later, they are required to go to Jerusalem to present their firstborn to the Lord and to make sacrifice, make an offering for for that blessing. And so we read in Luke chapter 2, they are they head down to Jerusalem. They are prepared to do this. And they come across a gentleman named Simeon. Now, Simeon was a man described in the text as righteous, devoted, and looking for the Messiah. 
in, uh, let's see, Luke uh, chapter 2, it says uh, in verse 25, he was looking for the consolation of Israel. So this is a man whose heart has been prepared. He is looking for the Messiah. He is looking for the Christ. And he is at the temple. He is worshiping. And he comes across Mary and Joseph, and he sees the baby Jesus. And this is what he says. Luke chapter 2, verse 29 to 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So look at what's happening here. In Psalm 96, we have a proclamation, we have praise to God, and we have a proclamation of salvation to the nations because the presence of God on earth, the physical presence, the ark, has come into Jerusalem to find its dwelling place. Jesus, when he is born, the human presence of God on earth comes into Jerusalem for the first time, and what do we have? We have worship to God, and we have proclamation of salvation to all the nations. And when David talks about a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant, that is a foreshadowing of what we see with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as the human presence of God on earth. Salvation is proclaimed to all the nations in the same manner that the presence of God, the Ark, arrived in Jerusalem in the Old Testament Salvation is proclaimed to all the nations. Now turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 9 through 11. Revelation 21, 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So what we see here is in the vision to to John, the angel says to him, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the bride? The church, the people. We are the bride of Christ. And so when he, when he brings them up there, he shows, he shows John this holy city of Jerusalem coming down, the new Jerusalem coming down on earth. And he describes the, uh, he describes the city of God as the people of God. And he says, the glory of God exists in this city. So you see the Jerusalem connection through all of this? So what we see here is the end of the age, God's people being gathered back to Jerusalem to dwell with God in his presence forever. God's presence, God's people, Jerusalem are always interconnected throughout Scripture. And the response is twofold. Number one, glory to God. Number two, proclamation of salvation to the nations. So Psalm 96, while we can read it and we can say, well, we should go and proclaim salvation to the nations because that's what it says, there's more meaning in there because not only is it a psalm of rejoicing 
and joy because the ark has come back into the nation of Israel. It's also a foreshadowing of when Christ is going to come to earth to dwell within us when he comes to Jerusalem. It's also a prophetic psalm in that it looks forward to the end of the age when all God's people once again are going to be gathered to Jerusalem. One thing that I love about studying the word is that it is not disconnected at all. The same thing runs through the entire thread of scripture. All of it points to Christ. And so we can always see that no matter where you are in scripture, you can always find some way to connect to Christ. So now let's move on to the proclamation. We worship the Lord because God's presence is in us. That's the call. The call to worship, God is in us. Now we proclaim. So in verse 2, Psalm 96, back to our text, I'm sorry. Back to our text, Psalm 96, verse 2. The second part, tell of his salvation from day to day. So what does that mean for us? We proclaim, okay? We proclaim the gospel. What does it mean to tell of his salvation from day to day? Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus is going to give us a little description of what that means. So Matthew 5, chapter... Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus gives us a little picture here, a little uh, illustration of what it means to proclaim salvation from day to day, that you are a light. And others are going to see this. The way to proclaim the gospel is to be a light so that others can see, not only see what you're doing, but they glorify God in heaven. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Now, a couple of things to say about light. When we say we want to be light, light is always intended to penetrate into darkness. One principle that I, we need to keep in mind, and, and uh, I, I'm preaching this to myself as much as to anybody else, so I should just like stand around with a mirror and, and tell myself this, because I need to remember this every day. Darkness does not seek out light. Light needs to seek out darkness. Turn with me to John. I know we're looking at a lot of scriptures here, but I, wanna, I want you to see this. John chapter 3, uh, verses 18 <clears throat> through 20. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. You know, we, we've heard that a lot. We know that that's a very familiar passage. Look down further in the paragraph. <clears throat> Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. People who are walking around in darkness, i.e. people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, are not looking 
to worship. They're not looking to be saved. They are not seeking out the Lord. Turn with me real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll look at this in another way. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel for the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what does this tell us about people who are not believers in Christ? Number one, they're blind. Number two, they're walking around in darkness. Number three, they don't care. They are not looking for salvation. They are not seeking the gospel. One of the things I remember uh, after the after the attacks in New York on 9-11, uh, in the weeks following, uh, I heard news stories about churches being filled with people. Um, you hear that sometimes after a tragic event. Um, churches, uh, people are going to church again, and you see churches attendance go up. <clears throat> so we say, well, that's great. People are searching. You know, they're looking for, for something. They're going to church. Uh, maybe they're going to get saved, possibly. But... They are searching, and that is true, but they're searching for comfort. They're searching for hope. Oftentimes that hope is misplaced, but they are looking for hope because it's a, it's a dark time for them. But what happens six months later, a year later, two years later? Churches are right back down to what they were the day before the tragedy. So I think we say if we can honestly say if these people were actually looking for salvation, if these people were really truly being drawn by the Holy Spirit, looking to have their lives changed, looking to believe, six months later, a year later, churches would still be full, right? But they're not. And we, we're not going to turn here, but in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us the illustration of the, uh, uh, the parable of the sower. And he talks about a man, he talks about four different types of people where the word of the, the text says the word of the kingdom. They're hearing the word of God, these four people, but only one of them is changed. The, either it falls on hard soil, it doesn't even take root. Some people receive it at first with joy. That's what we see after something like that. They hear the word of God and they say, oh, wow, that's great, that's comforting, that's inspiring, I love that. But then it dies quickly. It never really took root. Only one out of four, their life was changed. These are people walking around in darkness. So what we need to be doing, if we're going to proclaim salvation from day to day, we need to be intentionally, actively looking for dark places where that light can be shown. Something else to to remember about darkness. Uh, Dark places, darkness is not necessarily defined by what we see on the outside. Um. Sometimes it's very easy to, to say, to look at some, a situation or a place and say that's dark. Some, usually it's associated with morality. Uh, bad things are going on there. We don't go there. That's a dark place. It's very easy to see. But morality is not a gauge of darkness. It's a result of darkness. Even the most morally good, the most seemingly kind, generous people, if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they're still in darkness. 
It doesn't matter how they're acting on the outside. If they have not been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they are still walking in darkness. In Luke 18, Jesus tells us, or we read the story about a a rich young ruler who had approached Christ. We're not going to turn there. But uh, this is a man who was very wealthy. He was very learned in in the law. And uh, he approaches Christ and says, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus says, well, don't murder, don't steal, don't kill. You know, all these things of the law, he says, do all those things. And the guy says, "I, I do all those things. So we learn that he is a very upright, upstanding man. He's very good in the eyes of the world. He does a lot of good things. And then Jesus says, one more thing, you need to sell everything and, and follow me. And then he walks away. So even this morally upright man, who was good in the eyes of society, has still not accepted Christ. He has not accepted salvation. He is still in darkness. There was one thing he was holding on to, whatever it might be. But the point is, is that he was a moral man who we could say, that's a good person, still in darkness, still with the veil over their eyes. So as we think about proclaiming salvation from day to day, as we think about the work that, that we are going to be doing, Lord willing, in Ireland, the work that others are doing around the world, uh, the work that we do here in Westerlo and wherever your community is, we cannot rely on methods that depend on people coming to us. Some do. Uh, the Lord uses lots of different methods to draw people. And some people walk in the door saying, I, I'm looking for something here. They hear the gospel, they get saved. That's great. But that is the exception rather than the rule. We need to be bringing the light actively into them, into their dark state. So what we see in Psalm 96, what we see uh, the New Testament uh, showing us is action, movement. It's always us going, proclaiming. We worship God because he's with us and, and his presence is in us and we have salvation. Then we proclaim. We go out. John chapter 3 again. Jesus, it says, the light of the world stepped down into darkness. We sing that worship song. Stepped down into darkness. Jesus moving into the world. In Luke chapter 5, uh, we read the account of Jesus calling uh, Levi, the tax collector, the, the man who eventually wrote the book of Matthew. And he says, you come down and follow me. He follows him. Later on, he's found at Matthew's house having dinner, having a meal with him and the other tax collectors. And he's being criticized for this. They're saying, why are you hanging out with these guys? These are bad people, morally bad people. Why are you with them? And his response is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the, the sick. Jesus going to them. He's not going to a place and and saying, well, I'm going to wait for them to come to me. He's going to where they are. Read through the book of Acts uh, when Paul traveled in his missionary journeys. He would come to a new city, and he would often, it says, he would go to the synagogue. He was looking to bring the message of salvation to the Jews. His heart was for reaching Jews. So where did he go? He went to where the Jews were, in the synagogue. He didn't go to a city and set up his tent that he had just made, and hang a sign and say, the First Baptist Church of Corinth, come, please come hear the gospel. You might get a few. He didn't do that. That wasn't his method. His method was to go to where they were to proclaim the gospel. People who are working, walking in darkness are not looking to be set free. 
They don't know that there's light out there until we shine it into their lives. This is why they need to hear the good news of the gospel. This is why it needs to be proclaimed actively to them. This looks very different for different people. It could be co-workers that we don't normally talk to. It could be different circle of kids at school that we don't normally hang out with. It could be a neighbor. It could be family members. Or it could be overseas, in Europe, in Africa. It could be in Alaska. Whatever the case may be, it's very unique to each of us. Our call, our commission is to be a light proclaiming, looking for darkness and proclaiming salvation. And then back to our text, just to finish up the section in verses 4 through 6, Psalm 96. We get the, we kind of get the reason why. We worship God because He's come into our, his presence is in us. We have salvation. We proclaim salvation. The reason why? Because, verse 4, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We proclaim because of what he has done, verses 1 and 2. We also proclaim because of who he is, verses 4 through 6. So what he has done and who he is, proclamation lies at the center of it, is always at the center of those two things. It's great to worship. It's great to remember what God has done. It's great to to remember who God is. But that has to be encircled in proclamation. And these verses basically say there is no room for acceptance. There's no room for shared glory with other gods. There is no room to try to make things fit together with, with the God of creation. He's basically saying, our God is God, your God is not. That's the reason why we proclaim. So to kind of wrap it all up here, proclaiming salvation in Christ is the center of all. It's the daily calling of every single believer in Christ. Something to remember also about this is that this is not a call just for missionaries. I didn't use the word missionary at all here. This is not a call for missionaries. This is not a call for pastors. Uh, In Psalm 96, this was not a call just for a certain select group of the nation of Israel. This is a call for every single one of the people of God to go and proclaim salvation to the nations every single day, day to day, day to day. So, the challenge I, I'm, I give to myself every day is that I would pray that, Lord, give me an opportunity to proclaim your gospel today. How? I don't know. Stand on the corner with a megaphone and start preaching? I hope not. <laughs> but uh, in, in uh, Ireland, where we're looking to, uh, to go and work, uh, they do a lot of door-to-door evangelism. And I'll tell you what, very little scares me more than going door-to-door doing evangelism. However, that's what they have found to be somewhat effective over there. So that's what they do. So I said, okay, Lord, we're going to do that. Whatever it takes to get the gospel out there. Um, We heard about uh, Dan in France and the various creative ways that, that he tries to get connected with people to proclaim the gospel. Whatever it may be, 
whatever it takes, whatever God puts before you, I'm not going to say there's one right method, but whatever opportunity God presents to you to proclaim salvation, to proclaim the good news of Christ, to open our mouths and start speaking the gospel, the good news, we pray that the Lord will open doors for us. So that's my challenge to myself. That's my challenge to us today, that God will show you a dark corner, some dark area where you can bring the light of salvation, where you can look to bring the light of the gospel into that place. Let's pray.